Welcome to Sex Care is Self-Care, a conversation on women's sexual health brought to you by the Patty Brisbane Foundation for Women's Sexual Health. I'm your host, Patty Brisbane. As the founder and chairwoman of Pure Romance, I realized the crucial need for more education, research, and community awareness about women's sexual health, something that is essential to every woman's well-being. That is why I established the Patty Brisbane Foundation for Women's Sexual Health. Today is our first episode of Sex Care is Self-Care, and we are taking it back to the basics. Before we talk about specific sexual health issues, we first need to understand what sexual health is, why is it important, and how sex positivity is related. I'd love for the members of our advisory board to introduce themselves. Dr. Critchman, can we start with you? Thanks, Patty. It's really a pleasure and honor to be here and share this uh, podcast series with you. I'm uh, Mike Critchman. I am a board-certified OBGYN and the executive director of the Southern California Center for Sexual Health and Survivorship Medicine. I'm also a uh, clinical professor at the University of California, Irvine. Uh, for me, the journey of Patty Bisman Foundation has been a long one. I've been on the board for about seven years, and I'm very uh, lucky and fortunate to recently uh, take the head of the uh, board as the chair. So I'm really excited to be here. We have a great series, and uh, thank you for uh, all that you do for women everywhere. I'm Sherelle Iglesia. Uh, Patty, Michael, it's so fun to be here with you guys. I am the director of female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery for MedStar Health and a professor of OBGYN and urology um, at Georgetown University School of Medicine here in our nation's capital in Washington, DC. I'm also a double board certified in OBGYN and urogynecology. And it is just really great to be doing something fun and positive today. Um, talking about sex. So an honor to be on the board, an honor to be speaking to all of you and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. And hello, I'm also thrilled to be here. Uh, my name is uh, Christine Vaccaro and I'm a new member of the Medical Advisory Board. I am fellowship trained and board certified in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. I'm um, also the fellowship director and an associate professor at my institution near Dr. Iglesia in Bethesda, Maryland. Very excited about the conversation. Thank you. Well, I'm Kathleen Novicki. I'm a doctor of physical therapy and certified as a pelvic health rehabilitation professional. Um, this um, pelvic health physical therapist um, is a recent specialty, um, and I've been fortunate to be one of the um, first uh, movement members, and I'm the pioneer of this area in the Cincinnati, um, Northern Kentucky area. Um, I'm very excited to be here um, um, because it is a relatively new specialization. Not a lot of people even realize that physical therapy exists for this. Um, so I'm, I'm always um, excited about sharing that information. So thanks for um, having this podcast. <laughs> So I don't know about you, but I'm really excited about getting this conversation started. So Dr. Critchman, let's start with you. Let's start with what exactly is sexual health 
And let's all remember, it's not a dirty word. Right, of course. And, you know, when I think about sexual health, I always go back to the basics and I think about the World Health Organization and how they really have a very comprehensive uh design and thought process about what sexuality is. And it's really not only the physical, but also emotional, mental, and social well-being of uh, people as they engage in sexuality. And it also is really critical to remember that it doesn't always mean just lack of uh, problems. It's about empowerment. It's about positive expression of sexuality with respect, uh, enhancing relationships, and other things that are really important to remember about sexual health is that it should be free of coercion. Um, it should be free of violence and free of discrimination as well. So it's an all-encompassing uh, concept, not only about sexuality, sensuality, and intimacy, but also the, the complete experience of sexual well-being. Anybody want to add anything else to this? Patty, I'll jump in. Um, I love what uh, Dr. Kretschmann said. I would just add that um, sexual intimacy and physical touch are essential components of mental and physical well-being. And they contribute so significantly to our quality of life, contentment, happiness. So for me, the bottom line is sexual health is health. I, I agree 1000%. We often hear about disparities in healthcare based on race and gender, but these disparities also exist in research funding. How is awareness about women's sexual health related to research funding? Dr. Inglesias? Okay, Patty, that's a big question, particularly given the fact that male sexual health dominates over female sexual health, just when you consider the number of drugs and treatments that have been approved for male sexual health, I think it's something like 24 to 2. If we talk about all the PD, you know, all the Viagra type drugs compared to like the very few, two or three that have been approved for women's sexual health. So in general, women's sexual health has not gotten as much airtime. And what really matters is the government's um, response in terms of providing research dollars. The other thing that's interesting about research, and we talk about big, big initiatives, like for example, the Billion Die Women's Health Initiative, the number of minorities was represented um, in a big hormone trial like that was very, very small. In fact, that's one of the things that we were proud about at MedStar and Georgetown in our partnership with GW and Howard is that we were one of the biggest minority recruiters for that very big hormone trial. And, and you know, when you go back as to why there are not a lot of African-Americans, Latinas, Asians, represented in clinical trials and a lot of women's sexual health. And I would say much to our chagrin, GYN surgery in general, gynecologic surgery um, usually includes 80, 90% white women and usually suburban white women. So why is that? I think there's problems with access. I think there might overall be some mistrust. Um, and when you go back to the syphilis, um, experiment, you know, that 
was not very good to African-Americans in terms of exposure without treatment to things. So there may be some mistrust in the history um, for minorities. And I think just access, you know, whether it be a Latina who's worried about being in a trial because of some documentation issues. So everything that we're seeing right now in our country that relates to um, discrimination, uh, inequities, disparities, and justice can be seen, you know, even in the, the area of research, which should be Switzerland. It should be very neutral. Um, but I think yeah. there's so much background that it's understandable and we need to change that conversation. I mean, look at look at right now with the vaccines just in general and who's being impacted and access to vaccination and even the, the sicker people are generally minorities. So it goes way back. It's something that um, always is in the top of, of mind. And I'm so happy that you um, as head of the PBF Foundation are very much interested in making sure that minorities are included in the type of research that we are funding. Exactly. Thank you. Dr. Novicki, as a pelvic floor physical therapist, could you explain how you work with patients and their healthcare providers on sexual health issues? Yes, thank you. Well, physical therapists are functional movement disorder specialists. Um, and we're probably very familiar with the orthopedic physical therapist um, where, you know, you may no longer enjoy running because you have a weak or a sore knee. Um, it's really no different with a pelvic health physical therapist. Um, you may no longer enjoy sex because of a weak or sore pelvis. And when I'm talking about pelvis, I'm not just talking about the pelvic floor. Um, we're also talking about the hips, the back, the core, the lower extremities. Um, they're all involved. Um, so um, as a pelvic floor physical therapist, we're looking at um, improving the functional, so you have a, a healthy, functionally sexual body. Um, what we do with pelvic floor um, physical therapy is really no different than orthopedic physical therapy. Um, we use exercise, we use manual therapy. Um, what might be a little different is that we utilize biofeedback quite a bit. Um, and the reason behind that is, is the pelvic floor muscles are somewhat hidden. <laughs> you can't nat um, naturally take a look and see how they're moving. So um, biofeedback can give you the opportunity to um, set goals to um, improve that um, function back to normal um, or enhance it. Um, the most important thing that uh, we do as physical therapists, though, is that we're changing that negative association of a poorly functioning body to the positive association of a healthy, fully functioning sexual body. And it's no different than improving, um, allowing that runner to enjoy running again. That's a, you know, that's a very comfortable way of, of explaining what you do. Um, I know that a lot of women don't know how to find a physical therapist. Do they ask their doctor? What do they do? Yes, um, definitely. That would be the first thing to do is to ask your healthcare provider um, for a referral to a physical therapist. Um, however, you can also go to Women's Health, APTA, 
pelvichealth.org. Um, and that's the um, Pelvic Health Academy of the Physical Therapy Association. And there you will find a directory that um, you can put, punch in your zip code and they will um, share with you um, physical therapists that are specialized in pelvic health. That's great. Thank you very much for sharing that information. Now, this is a term that we've been hearing a lot lately. What does it mean to be sex positive? Dr. Critchman, will you start? Great. Um, I mean, I think for me, when you're talking about sexual positivity, it's on twofold. And building upon what Sherelle and Kathleen uh, both have talked about is the concept of empowering not only your patients, but educating the people that they are visiting for their healthcare visits. So it's a twofold process. Number one is being sex positive as the patient, being your own advocate, being empowered, not being embarrassed. And as you started off the podcast saying, sex is not a dirty word and being sexual is an intimate part of overall general health and wellness. And uh, I think it's really important that we talk about a lot of uh, bodily functions, but when it comes to our intimate relationship, we're very embarrassed. We have preconceived ideas about how both clinicians and uh, support staff may act or react. And as uh, patients and as women, they I think the whole concept of sexual positivity is about being empowered, not being embarrassed to talk about your wants, your needs, your desires. So many women are, are living in what I would call the sexual shadows. They have all these intimate needs, whether it's a physical or emotional or sensual uh, need, and they feel like they can't discuss this, even with their intimate partner that they've been with for many, many years for a variety of reasons. And twofold, you know, the healthcare providers, I think, you know, um, we have a long way to go. Um, we have no issue uh, really talking about male sexual function. And if you look at, um, you know, the media, it's okay to say the word penis uh, or erection on the news. But when you come to uh, female sexuality, you have to say, you know, down there. Um, and I'm always wondering down there, where is it your knees, your ankles or what have you? I, I think it's really um, it's really sad that we can't say the word vagina. We can't say the word orgasm. Um, so I think there is this concept for educating healthcare providers to be open, to create a comfortable, safe environment. And, you know, I think it's challenging. You know, we have a lot of diverse uh, people who have ascribed to a variety of different orientations and sexual behavior. And we need to be consciously aware that not everybody fits into the same mold and mm -hmm. everybody's expression and enjoyment of sex is different and diverse. And we have to really, really learn this concept of acceptance. And I think it permeates too with what Shirelle had talked about, about this diversity uh, issues. We have preconceived notions as healthcare providers that, you know, sexuality is a luxury of the, you know, upper upper middle class, wealthy um, Caucasian woman, and that somebody who is a minority may not experience sexual problems as well. So combating this discrimination and allowing and creating a comfortable environment is all part of being sexually positive. 
That's great. So Dr. Inglesia, does sex positive sex positivity only apply to women? Absolutely not, Patty. <laughs> sex positive is universal, LGBTQ plus. Um, yeah. You know, sex positive really has to have a premise, though, in respect, uh, mutual respect, uh, self-respect. There has to be a, an element of consent because um, when we when we talk about women in America, and ACAG has this, this this statistic, which is very unfortunate, that one out of three women in America has been a victim of sexual violence. Um, so those two premises are really important, but talking about what you're saying, it's not a dirty word. And, you know, I grew up Catholic. So, you know, sex was, you know, safe for marriage. You're only supposed to do this to uh, procreate. But my dad was a general surgeon and, you know, rest his soul. He died last year. And I've given a lot of sex talks. And I've always wished I had a copy of this sign, which he had. I don't know who gave it to him. But whenever I brought someone up to my house and the sign, which was prominently displayed in his office, said, of all my relations, I like sex the best. I was like so embarrassed by that. But now when I go back, I have no idea where the sign is. I need to find the sign. I should ask my mother. It's probably somewhere. I, think I love that. That's a positive message. Yes. yes. It is something that we need to know. And, and it starts with sex with one. I think we also need to educate people about um, masturbation and self-pleasure. And then what you know, what works for you, it's a lot easier to have that conversation with others. The second thing is, um, I, I, I think that people have different definitions of what sex is. Um, you know, for some, you ask I see a lot of patients here and I'll say, are you sexually active? And they'll say, no, they don't have a partner, but they have a boyfriend. They have a, they have a, um, uh, um, a, a good friend and they handhold and that's considered sex for them. And I, you know, positive, whatever feels good. It's right. It's done with no judgment, mutual respect and consent. Let's, I think we need a lot more sex right now in our country, honestly, <laughs> with the way we're going in this pandemic. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Well, Dr. Bricaro, let me ask you, how can you, what's your advice in ensuring that you can uh, seek out a sex positive doctor? Probably, but first I need to tell Sherelle that I'm going to make her that sign. I have a great website. <laughs> Um, Make us all that sign. <laughs> we we got to sell it. We got to we gotta just give them out for free. <laughs> right. Um, but that's a great question. Unfortunately, most doctors don't feel comfortable discussing sexual health. Usually this is due to lack of adequate training in medical school, residency, or their postgraduate training. The good news is most doctors know someone in their practice or someone they can refer to to help. So I think the first step in finding a sex positive doctor is to book an appointment to discuss sexual concerns. Usually the office staff may know of one or more providers in the office that specialize in sexual health complaints, or they know where to um, refer to. Um, unfortunately, what I see is many women book an appointment with their physician for other reasons, annual exam, PAP, some itching concern, et cetera. And at the very end of the encounter, as if it's not important at all, will ask a sexual health related question or concern. 
A sex positive doctor will acknowledge the concern as a valid medical health concern and either extend that visit um, or more often request the patient make a follow-up to discuss the concern in detail. I actually prefer the latter option because it's really important to understand the sexual concern. The provider needs to understand the patient's medical sexual history, the partner's function, the psychological stressors, anxiety, depression, finances, family health, et cetera, prior, prior level of optimal sexual functioning, and then also perform an exam targeting the patient's sexual health complaint. During this encounter, it's helpful if the sexual medicine provider has a structured health intake form to ensure all these contributors to sexual health are addressed. Also, a sex-positive doctor will ask open-ended questions. I know it's crazy. Let the patient talk. Uh, there was a study showing that we providers cut patients off at like five to nine seconds when they start talking. So it's important to know that um, we ask open-ended questions and then allow the patient to talk, to elaborate on their sexual concerns. Also, a sex-positive doctor is willing to have the conversation to validate the concerns um, and to treat and refer to other important sexual health team members, such as pelvic floor physical therapy, behavioral health specialists, pain specialists, or other sexual health and intimacy counselors. Um, so again, the bottom line is a sex positive doctor is gonna validate the concern. They're going to um, make the patient feel that the concern is something important, which it is. And, and Patty, if you don't mind, I'll just kind of jump in and build upon what uh, Christine talked about. I think it's really important. We, it was one of our directives at the Patty Brisbane Foundation. We developed resources uh, that you can find online about building a uh, healthcare, sexual healthcare team. It's available. And I think the important thing, Christine, as you mentioned, is, you know, a good healthcare provider is never afraid of a second opinion. And referral is never a failure. The failure is when you when you discount or you brush aside or you ignore uh, a healthcare issue. We know that you know, in general, healthcare professionals, irrespective of their sex, both men and women, are really uncomfortable talking about sexual health issues. But there are really dedicated clinicians out there who have focused their careers on being sexually positive and inclusive and accepting a variety of different uh, sexual orientations and treating these both with a biopsychosocial model. I think it's also important to know when to break up with your clinician, right? And to recognize that your needs are not being met and your sexual needs are very important in your overall general health and wellness. And if you're not getting the um, results or the attention or the acceptance that you deserve and you need to, to be sexually positive, it's okay to seek out other healthcare professionals. And of course, you know, the, the challenge is where to find those. And again, um, we are committed at the Patty Brisbane Foundation to help women empower themselves to become sexually positive and have positive healthcare professionals in their, you know, healthcare team. Thank you. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, Dr. Novicki, how does sex positivity affect your work as a pelvic floor physical therapist? 
Well, most would say that sex positivity resides in our brain since it deals with our belief system, our attitudes towards sex. Um, but we know that the brain and the body are intricately connected. Um, for instance, if you were to walk into a situation that might be fearful or anxious, is your body relaxed? No, it's tense and it's tense all over, including the pelvic area. Um, if this occurs during sex, then of course, um, you can associate it with a very negative experience. Um, if it occurs during rehabilitation, it may delay or prevent progress. Um, so um, involving one's sex positivity within their rehab is essential. Um, for instance, um, you know, if you were um, an athlete and you came into physical therapy and we did exercise and we got you strong and said, okay, just run out there and, and play a game. Well, you haven't played a game in three months. Um, and how do you know that you can even do a layup anymore, you know, a, a basketball layup anymore? Um, it's the same thing with um, sexual um, experience. Um, we need to progress um, from the clini clinical uh, rehabilitation to functional rehabilitation. And that may include um, partners. Um, it certainly involves um, your own beliefs and attitudes. And what works for one person certainly doesn't work for another. Um, if indeed you have a strong Catholic background and you um, have a negative association with certain things, then we wouldn't necessarily push that in on you. Um, but um, if you're comfortable and your partner is interested in um, um, supporting this, um, it's not unusual that we'll have um, a um, person's partner come into therapy and learn some of the manual therapies that they can do at home to progress towards a natural sexual relationship again. Um, so um, the most important thing is for the physical therapist or any healthcare provider to find out your particular um, attitudes and beliefs um, towards sex and integrate that into your um, treatment plan. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Inglesia, how, how can one become more sex positive? What's your advice on that? Oh, well, let's see. There's, there's a lot of things that I think that we need to start with is, uh, and that starts with education from almost like cradle to grave. Patty. <laughs> yes, I know. And honestly, I really admire you and your what are we at? 40,000 associates, because what you're doing is a lot of like uh, boots on the ground type of education. And that is really admirable because, you know, I think a lot of people get a lot of misinformation, whether it be on the web. Um, I, we did a study once looking at what people thought and had images were normal vulvas and vaginas and what they thought were ideal. And and then one of the questions was, where did you get, you know, this information, you know, because there's a huge trend here with uh, grooming and waxing and shaving and what we think is the ideal vulva. And 86% of them said they, you know, they got it on the internet or pornography. And so I think we can do better than that. Um, I think that there's a lot of body shaming that goes on too with sexual debut. I think that media images and I'm even, even a, a, 
potentially sex positive show like Sex in the City, there's still a lot of body shame. I can remember one specific episode where Samantha was like body shaming Cindy uh, for having too much pubic hair. I am just saying there's a lot of um, misinformation. And so I think you have to educate yourself on reliable sources. I think Patty Brisbane Foundation and um, what we are doing um, is legit. I think there are other um, societies like the American College of OBGYN um, that have, and in the international societies like the Study for Women's Sexual Health that have really legitimate information. Um, at the same time, um, I think that you have to be a little bit adventurous. So what you, what's, if what's going on in your life right now isn't like you're not loving it, you're not digging it, or it's been the same old, same old, be a little adventurous um, to be positive and kind of like reboot your relationship um, or even just reboot your relationship with yourself. Michael, you're best at talking about this. Michael has sent me so many things <laughs> to help me in my education, including the donut and some other stuff. <laughs> I learned so much from him. <laughs> Well, you know, Sherelle, I think one of the important things to remember is I think, you know, we have to start saying the words sex and vagina and throw out the word normal. Okay. Because yeah. that has so many connotations. And I can tell you almost every day in my center, when I see a patient, they say, am I normal? And I don't know what normal is yet. You know, I think that we have to have an understanding about acceptance, about differences, and it's the basics. It's the foundation. Um, and it's about anatomy, knowing your parts, um, you know, and using the right words. You know, women have been vilified, vilified for talking about their anatomy, Um when men are not. And again, it goes to this dichotomy of how we educate our young women to be uh, empowered about their bodies. I mean, it's surprising um, to me that there are so many women in their 50s, 60s, 70s that they don't understand their external and internal anatomy, and they don't understand where the clitoris is. So, you know, there's estimates that, you know, a, a large majority of women don't even understand where their clitoris is. And, um, and I think that's a really important concept about the journey of sexual understanding and sexual exploration. And it starts at the fundamentals and it starts you know, with the, the concept of knowing that there are external organs, there are internal organs, um, and the foundation in which we teach our young women to be empowered about their bodies as they grow up into womanhood and experience a variety of different experiences as well. You know, I, I, I base this on permission, giving yourself permission to understand your body and giving yourself permission to be able to openly speak to your significant other and also to your physician. You've got to get comfortable. And right here is a great place to start feeling comfortable about your body and about yourself. Um, I think it's important to run through the foundation's six focus areas. So Dr. Iglesias, let's start with you with the vulva vaginal pain disorder. Can you speak on that? Oh yeah. Well, let me just segue a little bit on what Micah was saying, because not only do people not know that the clitoris is a big organ, 
with a glance yeah. and a body and two legs, <laughs> they also this misconception about the hymen and how the hymen, the presence or absence thereof can connote for um, if you're a virgin or not. And that is totally not based on accurate, any, any kind of data. So there's new procedures to like make people a, vir a virgin again and do hymenoplasties. I'm all not, not for that. And so when we talk about uh, on the vulva vagina segment that we're going to have, <laughs> I think we'll focus on anatomy. I think we can talk about um, some of the congenital and acquired disorders that can affect the skin along the vulva and the vagina. Um, sometimes the clitoris itself can get buried. Um, there's also different pain disorders that are not only related to the vulva, where the nerves can get impacted, but it can affect the bladder and um, the whole pelvis in general. There's all different kinds of conditions. And it's, it's going to take an astute clinician to be able to focus in on that. Mm -hmm. Finally, I mean, I'm going to, I'm Kathy talks about the muscles of the pelvic floor, but certainly pelvic floor myalgia and pelvic pain, um, it, uh, a condition known as vaginismus can be identified and it can be easily treatable with someone with the skill set of Dr. Novicki. So I think it's important for us to not just understand the anatomy, but understand what happens as women age because this whole concept of genital urinary syndrome of menopause relates to the dryness that can occur with declining estrogen levels, particularly as women reach the, men the perimenopause and the menopause, totally reversible totally treatable so that you can have a sex, um, a satisfying sexual, um, um, life, you know, throughout your life. Um, so I think these are important conversations to have because it just doesn't have to go away. Thank you. Is that enough? I'm not sure. It's such a broad topic. <laughs> this is just a, a teaser of what we're going to talk about in the future. Thank you. Um, okay. Let's talk about intimacy-related sexual dysfunction after cancer treatment. Dr. Crutchman? I'll jump in there. Um, so again, we know that um, the treatments that we do, whether it's surgical or interventions like radiation or chemotherapy or even these cytostatic um, medications or medications that we are prescribing to keep disease uh, quiet, they have both direct and indirect effects on the sexual response. So they may cause dryness, they may cause pain, they may change hormones and cause premature menopause. Um, you know, cancer is now considered a chronic medical condition. You're going to live very long with your cancer diagnosis and the concept of survivorship or living with cancer, or more people are calling it uh, thriving in cancer, uh, sexual vitality is really important. And how do you maintain that co that connection when we have had changes, whether it's medication, surgical, or anatomical, or what have you? I think those are really uh, important, impactful issues. And you know, my stint uh, before I moved to California was at um, one of the major cancer institutions in the Northeast, and. Uh, we visited every division and every time we got, well, our patients are just worried about being alive. And our, my response was patients are telling me they're alive, but they're dead down there. And it, it's, it 
hugely important for them to maintain their connection. We all don't know how long we have, uh, whether it is, you know, uh, accidents or what have you, or disease. And I think optimizing the time that we have left, no matter how long that may be, is certainly critical. And sexuality is a vital component of that. I agree. Um, how about libido and desire? Well, libido and desire really, I think, has gotten a bad rap for women. And again, uh, there's very often this uh, paternalistic, uh, male-dominated thought process that, you know, women have to wake up and they're lurking for sex around every corner and they have to have a male pattern desire uh, or sexual interest and thoughts about fantasy and thoughts about um, wanting uh, sexual activity. And again, the, the concept of the biopsychosocial model of uh, sexual wants, needs, desires is, is variable. And it changes throughout your life cycle, whether it is, you know, during uh, the perimenopause or the menopausal transition or with child rearing or even pregnancy, uh, you know, we know that medications may impact libido as well. So one of our focuses really is on uh, getting a better understanding of the pathophysiology of libido, the experience of libido, and how can we uh, both as clinicians and as, as you know, patients as well, how we can modify and improve our uh, libido as we age. Thank you. Um, also, Dr. Vicki, can you speak a little on uh, physical and sexual abuse being yeah. one of our topics? Well, um, I saw that the World Health Organization estimates between 10 to 60% of women and girls, depending on what country you reside in, um, will experience physical or sexual violence in their lifetime. Um, so that's a huge number. Um, and if you are unfortunately one of those that have experienced um, sexual abuse, um, you're not alone. Um, it can have long lasting impact on um, women's feelings of sex, um, have an inability to find pleasure in sexual um, intimacy. And this can last for many, many years, um, well after the um, violent act may have occurred. Um, some physical um, effects that can occur after um, such a experience, you may have experienced a chronic pelvic pain uh, or vaginismus, which is just that involuntary um, contraction of muscle or muscle spasm in the pelvic floor muscles. Um, the Patty Brisbane Foundation um, is committed to funding the research and the programs, not only to help to find ways to um, improve victims of physical and sexual abuse, um, but also in helping um, in uh, methods to prevent um, um, sexual abuse as well. Dr. Vaccaro, so our last uh, and one of our newest is female genital mutilation. Is it really happening here? And why is it important for us to have this as part of the Patty Brisbane Foundation? That's a great question, Patty. Um, I do want to a little bit define what it is and then give a little a little history. Um, this practice goes by lots of different names: female circumcision, female genital cutting. Um, um, it's mostly performed in Sub-Saharan Africa as well as some other um, 
parts of Asia and the Middle East. In the United States, um, these cultures that come usually from these um, communities uh, traditionally can send their um, daughters abroad to have the procedure performed. Um, in our country and in other countries, this um, is illegal and considered child abuse. But I do want to, to know, culturally in these um, particular areas, um, and this comes from um, an ISWISH uh, panel discussion from some years ago, um, this is actually a, a rite of passage for some women. And if the, if the young woman um, does not have the procedure, this may cause dishonor and inability to marry. Um, so I, I do want to make that distinction and in, in interviewing some of these women from these cultures, um, they see the American uh, vulva slash vagina as open and ugly, whereas their viewpoint of their body image is that's how they prefer to look. So I think um, when I heard that the first time, it was kind of mind blowing and eye opening um, to, to understand the differences in culture and um, where the where the. Um, the traditions come from. But um, to summarize, there are three main types which involve various cutting procedures to the vulva, uh, removing the clitoral hood, the glands, removing parts um, or all the labia and or sewing the labia together, leaving only a small hole for urination, menstruation, intercourse. And as one would expect, low libido and difficulty with orgasm and sexual pain are common after this procedure. Additionally, um, during childbirth, the labia have to be opened and then um, in the traditional sense, then they are usually requested to be closed after delivery. We know very little, back to your original question, we know very little about sexual functioning of um, these women after different types of female genital cutting or how reversal, a procedure called de-infibulation, um, can affect their sexual function. There's several small case studies showing um, a return to normal sexual function after um, opening up the lady again, but um, this is, is I'm, I'm certainly very excited to see more funding and research in this um, area, which has very little um, knowledge, so. Thank you. Um, Dr. Critchman, can you give us the quick and dirty on our grant cycle? Sure. Um, so the grant cycle for the Patty Brisbane Foundation is relatively simple. We we ask for a letter of intent, which is really a short form that you put in your, you know, the top detail points of what the planned research is, what category it will fall in, and a few other uh, details in terms of execution. These letters of intent are presented to the medical advisory board, and then they're reviewed, and we request um, by invitation, a detailed grant, which is thoroughly reviewed. And after that, uh, there's recommendations made to the executive. Um, the important thing to remember is all the information is available on the Patty Brisbane Foundation website. And we also have, you know, administrative support. So we also can connect with you uh, if you have any questions, concerns, or have some problems filling out any of the uh, forms. And one last thing is we encourage the use of the word sex, um, you know, and this is going full circle from the beginning. I remember when there was a time when government agencies, if you had the word sex in your title, uh, you were, it was immediately, immediately thrown into the garbage. 
But here at the Patty Brisbane Foundation, we are very sex positive and want to further the uh, research needs for women um, as they experience the diversity of sexual needs and sensuality as they uh, transition from young women into adults and finally as they uh, age gracefully in the mature years. I want to thank all of you for this great conversation. It's been an absolute privilege to have you a part of the PBF Medical Advisory Board. This has been an amazing conversation on what it means to be sex positive and why sex positive is so important to our health. Sexual health is general health. For more information on our six focuses, our Medical Advisory Board, and the Patty Brisbane Foundation for Women's Sexual Health, please visit pattybrisbanefoundation.org. Remember everyone, sex care is self-care and sexual health matters. <laughs>